First Timothy chapter two, verse one, Paul writes and he says, therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and the giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Paul's letter began as a charge to Timothy to preach sound doctrine. Paul warned about false teachers and false teaching, and he commissioned Timothy to teach sound doctrine to fight the good fight in verses 18 and 19, to maintain a clear conscience in his heart in verse 19. But now Paul will direct Timothy to consider the subject of public worship, of prayer. He's also going to talk about women in the church in verses 9 through 15. But in this brief but powerful portion, Paul reminds us who we are to pray for in verses 1 and 2. What we are to pray at the end of verse 2. How we are to pray in verse 8. We pray, in fact, for all men in verse 1. For those in authority in verse 2. We pray in order to live lives in quietness and peace. Lives that reflect godliness, dignity, reverence in verse 2. And what when we do this, we do it in the will of God in verses 3 through 17. He writes with hands, holy hands, lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy in verse 8. We do this always keeping in mind that God wants to give us opportunities to preach the gospel, to share the truth, to remind people of who God is and what Jesus has done. And so we begin to understand something, that as Paul gives us instruction, he reminds us of several things, the importance of prayer, the nature of prayer, the outcome of prayer, and then the optimal conditions for prayer. In chapter 1, Paul deals with the ministry of God's word, and now in chapter 2, he's going to begin to talk about worship. And he's also going to begin to talk about the work of service in the context of the church. And it becomes so very, very important because in the book of Acts, the focus or attention of the leaders in the church, Luke, in writing about this particular time in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, talks about how when the apostles gathered together, when there was problems and there was pain and there was difficulties and there was divisions and things needed to get done, that the the the, the apostles basically said that we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so we discover that the leaders' church, the leaders in the church, the, the pastors, the teachers, their job was to pray and to preach. The pastor's job wasn't necessarily to please the people or practice politics, but to engage in the spiritual ministry of worship, of discipleship, of prayer and evangelism. And the word of God instructs the people 
to pray. And the reason why this becomes important is because the word of God will give you information, but prayer is going to provide for you a mechanism of inspiration. It isn't good enough that you just have more and more information. You need to be able to take that information and use it in a way that is going to provide powerful results. So the purpose of prayer begins with the inspiration of the people, but prayer also invites God to do all that he says he will do and can do. As I alluded to earlier, prayer is an admission that we can't, but God can. And so when we attempt to do things in our own strength, I think that this is perhaps the number one reason why we neglect prayer and forsake prayer and decide not to pray. Because in our pride, it becomes an admission that, that we don't really need God or want God to intervene in this particular instance. And so he begins again by talking to Timothy. He says, the, about the importance of prayer in verse 1, he says, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications and prayers and intercessions and the giving of thanks be made for all men. I want to remind you of something that here the context isn't just simply advice for you as an individual. This is an invitation for the church as a whole to consider not just the benefits not just the power, but the reality that comes when we begin to take seriously what it means to pray. Not just individually, but corporately. The importance of prayer is indicated by Paul's language. Look what it says for yourself. Therefore, I exhort first of all. That's an interesting expression. It's Paul's way of saying... Look, there's lots of things that we can do and there's lots of things that we should do. But let's put this at the top of the list of things to do. We pray, not simply because we're instructed to pray, although that would be sufficient. If all we had to go on was Jesus's words, when you pray, that should be sufficient. When people ask and answer the question, why should I pray? It, it's always astonishing to me. People will ask me, they'll say, hey, look, why should I pray when God knows everything about everything and he's going to do whatever he wants no matter what I have to say? Well, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. God isn't willing to step off the throne of heaven and let you be in charge of the universe. The purpose of prayer isn't simply to convince God to do what, to have him do what you want him to do. Remember, part of the purpose of, of prayer is communion, fellowship, friendship, relationship. Can you imagine, wives, if your husband said to you, well, why should we talk? I mean, we're already married. We've known each other for years. Everything that we could possibly say, we've already said. Why don't we just give it up? What kind of a relationship are you going to have where there's no communication? We pray because we must pray. We pray because it's vital to the health and the strength of the church. We pray, and guess what? In moments of honesty and transparency, we have to admit that corporately we've been guilty of prayerlessness. This is something that we have to incorporate. Prayer isn't just simply vital to your relationship and your fellowship with God. It's vital in our relationship and our fellowship with each other and with the community in which we live. It's vital if people are going to show up at the church because, again, in the sense of 
People come to church not just simply to hear Carolyn sing or, or me preach. You come. I'm hoping you're coming so that you can experience the Lord, so you can sense his presence, so that you can hear from him, so that the emptiness or the hurt or the difficulties that you're experiencing, that a powerful God can in reality make a change. Warren Wearsby writes, quote, the Holy Spirit works in the church through prayer. And the word of God. The reason why I agree with that. God works by his spirit. By the word. By prayer. Do you think God works by gimmicks? By programs? By bait and switch activities? By smoke? By lights? By entertainment? I got to tell you something. We live in a culture and a society that's largely guided by feelings and entertainment. Don't get me wrong. I don't think that church should be boring. I don't think, and I think that worship should be excellent. And I think that the opportunities when we, when we come together should be such that, that, you, that you long for the opportunity that high on your list of things to do is to gather together. Wearsby goes on and he says that the church that prays will possess power for lasting impact. And the saints in the book of Acts turn to prayer in crisis and persecution in order to overcome enemies. No wonder Paul exhorts us to pray. So the church's prayer Look what it says. Included supplications, prayers, intercessions, the giving of thanks. You might look at that passage and go, what in the world does that mean? Well, supplications seem to mean telling God our needs. It was a word that invited, it was an invitation. Tell me what it is that you need. Tell me what it is that you think that is necessary. So supplication seems to mean telling God our needs. Prayers are petitions that include worship, adoration. Intercession involves requests made on, on behalf of others. Thanksgivings or appreciations are expressions of joy over what God has done in the lives of the saints and the church as a whole. What's interesting about this whole package, if you will, Paul doesn't lay out a laundry list of things to pray. He doesn't even simply, simply tell us, okay, when you pray, pray this way. Remember, Jesus has already done that. The disciples have come to him and they said, hey, teach us to pray. And he goes, okay, when you pray, pray like this. Say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He isn't giving it as a pattern so that you can, in a religious way, simply repeat it in order to do your religious duty. He's giving you a template to think about. And so what Paul does as he speaks of these issues, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and the giving of thanks, that expression, the giving of thanks, is absolutely fascinating in the original language. It's the Greek word eucharistius. You may not know that word, but it, there's an English word that has made its way into our vocabulary based on that word, Eucharist. Maybe some of you grew up in a religious tradition like myself where Eucharist was a common word that was used in the church that you went to. It was that little wafer of bread that's referred to in the Lord's Supper or in communion. The reason why this is important, Eucharistia was a word that meant giving thanks, expressing gratitude for all the good things that God has done. That's the meaning. It's the corporate opportunity 
to give thanks for what God has done, that he's given you life, that he's given you a family, that he's given you a job, or, or that he's given you health, or whatever it is that he's given you, all of the good things that God has given you, that he has provided for you. And sometimes we get into trouble because we become so preoccupied with what we don't have. This week I was talking to a person who's a filmmaker and he was doing a series of testimonies of people who have experienced powerful difficulty and setbacks. He was, he was doing an interview with, with a group of saints who somehow managed to survive the slaughter in Mogadishu or, where, um, or in Rwanda where the Hutus and the Tutsis were, were fighting with each other and they were chopping each other to pieces and there was so much pain and problems and difficulties. And he tells the story of this one group of, of ladies who were being hidden in a bathroom of all places. There was just this little tiny place where six women, uh, and they, they put a, an armoire over it to hide the door. And these ladies, six of them, had to live in this little tiny space for the next several days. And as you can imagine, it's hard enough. And plus you have to keep your mouth shut. You can't talk. And so one of the ladies said, when I was in this bathroom, I only had a couple of choices. I could just simply stare at the other five people who were crammed into, the, into this bathroom with me. Or I could sleep. Or I could pray. And I decided that I would pray. And the person goes on and talks about how God sustained her during this so terribly difficult time. And that the Lord gave her visions, if you will, and insights. And tragically, the Lord informed her that her brother had been hacked to pieces by a machete. And, and, and she, a bitterness and an anger welled up inside of her. And she said, I couldn't pray. I couldn't pray to the Lord with the hatred and the bitterness inside of my heart. And so I had to make a choice. I would either have to forgive these people who had just murdered my brother and not pray. Because the only thing that sustained me was the presence of God. And so she gave thanks for her friendship and her fellowship with God. We're all good at asking God for things. And often we're negligent in reminding ourselves of the incredible provision that God has made for us in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray for our family. We pray for our church. But Paul includes that these supplications, prayers, intercessions, and the giving of thanks be made for, look what it says in the text, all men. Isn't that interesting? Not just the people we know or just the people that we care about. Does this also include the people that we don't care about and maybe that we're not too fond of? I think that the answer is yes. And so now all of a sudden we begin to, we, we could presumptuously ask the question, well, why does Paul ask this? And I think in a moment of just simplicity and humility, you begin to understand something. All men need prayer, don't they? Everybody needs prayer. Have you ever said to someone, hey, could you please pray for me? When is that normally going to happen? It might be in a time of difficulty and it might be in a time of crisis. It might be in a time of need, but I've discovered that it should be at all times and every time. When someone will typically say to me, hey, you know what? I listened to you on the radio. Almost invariably, I'll say, would you please pray for me? When you're turning on that dial and all of a sudden you hear me speaking, here's the prayer I would like you to pray. God, help him. Help him, Lord. He's in trouble. Because as you can imagine... It takes sensitivity and submission to the Holy Spirit to ask and to think and to give people 
not just answers to their questions, but answers to the question that they're really not prepared to ask. And so then he talks again about the nature of prayer in all of those things. This includes the nature of prayer, the intercessions, the supplications. He says, for kings and for all who are in authority. Why does Paul say that? What happens when we pray for our leaders in government? Well, what Paul is trying to point out is that we're provided a, a measure of protection for the church from wicked men. But what some people sometimes forget to include when Paul writes these words to Timothy from Macedonia in Ephesus, who's the emperor of the world in 64 AD? Who? Nero, that's exactly right. You might be a little disgusted and dismayed by the leadership in our country. You might be thinking, we're experiencing a crisis. But when the Bible says, pray for kings and all who are in authority, I think Paul really means it because every single person who's in authority can make life easier for the Christian or harder for the Christian Paul writes these words when Nero is the emperor. And by the way, Nero's famous for a lot of things, including the persecution of the early church. It's fairly well known that a huge fire destroyed much of the city of Rome. And guess what year? 64 AD. I suspect that Paul literally wrote these words maybe months, literally months, before this catastrophic event took place. It triggered a series of persecutions both in Rome and the surrounding areas. Christians had severe restrictions imposed upon them. Some were publicly executed in the cruelest fashions. The Roman historian Tacitus, in his book, The Annals, which was the published account of the persecutions, he publishes it just a few years after the event. Tacitus was a young man when the event took place, and he notes that in the summer of 64 AD, Rome suffered a devastating fire that burned for six days, seven nights, consumed three quarters of the city. He writes, some suspected the emperor may have set the fire for his own amusement and to deflect those accusations and placate the people. Nero blamed the Christians. Tacitus writes, quote, Therefore, to stop the rumor that he had set fire, that he set Rome on fire, he, the Emperor Nero, falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures the people commonly called Christians, who were generally hated for their enormities. Christ's, the founder of, of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius, but the pernicious superstition repressed for a time broke out again, not only through Judea where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also, whither all things horrible and disgraceful flow from all quarters as to a common receptacle where they are encouraged. Accordingly, first those who were arrested were who confessed they were Christians, next on their information of that multitude were convicted not so much on the on the charge of burning the city but as of hating the human race this is written by an unbeliever who doesn't believe in in the god of the bible doesn't believe in jesus doesn't believe anything about the gospel but what's important about his statement is he's proving what the bible already says Tacitus describes gruesome tortures where Christians were covered with the hides of wild beasts, worried to death by dogs, nailed to crosses, set on fire. He writes, when the day waned. He said they would put Christians on fire when the sun goes down. They were burned to serve as evening lights. He writes that they were pitched in animal fat and placed on a stake and then lit up like a torch. 
Nero offers his own garden players for the spectacle, he writes, indiscriminately mingling with the common people in the dress of a charioteer or standing in the chariot, Tacitus writes, for this cause a feeling of compassion arose towards the sufferers. In other words, even the pagan Romans began to feel sorry for the Christians. Why? Did the pagan Romans suspect that maybe they were doing something wrong? Yeah, they suspected it. But the common Roman began to think that Nero was persecuting them, not out of justice or for the public good, but in order to satisfy his own wickedness. Can you imagine? In the midst of those cruel persecutions and punishment, Paul encourages Timothy and the Christians to pray for their leaders. Now you have no excuse for praying for this president, for its Congress or the judiciary or the leaders in the state. As a matter of fact, let's just take a moment and pray for them right at this very moment. Heavenly Father, we pray for our president. We pray for the leaders. We pray for the Congress. We pray for the judicial system, for the Supreme Court and all of the judges. We pray for our governor. We pray for all of the local elected officials. Lord, we pray that they would love righteousness and that they would hate what is wicked. Lord, we pray that they would be willing to do what's right instead of what's wrong. Lord, we pray that they would honor you instead of dishonor you. Lord, we pray that they would be willing to do those things that make for safety instead of harm. And Heavenly Father, again, we pray that you would give them wisdom as they have to make difficult decisions. Lord, we're reminded of what the scripture itself says, that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any nation. Lord, help them, give them wisdom to make good choices. In Jesus' name, amen. We face challenges as Christians. We live in a culture with a government that's becoming more and more hostile to Christianity and Christians. The Bible's solution, we pray for them. We pray in crisis. We pray when it's calm. Again, Paul doesn't give an exhaustive list of what to pray, but rather that we pray. Clearly, God allows some to rule. And he allows others not to rule. When we had our event with Eric Metaxas, I reminded everyone that the Lord's been showing me that we magnify the Lord. We give him praise and honor. We praise him and we glorify him. We speak of his attributes. We make God larger and larger and larger because when we do, the candidates become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And you have such a great God that all of a sudden you begin to understand that no matter how difficult the situation is, there is a God who is in control. Clearly, God allows some to rule and others not to rule. And if you don't believe that, I would encourage you to look up Psalm chapter 2 and reread it for yourself. Then he talks about the aims of prayer. Look what he says. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Paul lists an unexpected outcome of prayer. What happens when we pray corporately, together, for the things that he's spoken of? What happens when we pray together for all men and then for each other? What happens when we pray? Peace for the saint. Peace for the church. Peace in society. Christians pray for their country and their country's leaders. In the world, there are countries that some are more benign towards Christians and then others are more severe. It would appear that prayer sometimes 
quiets the fires of persecutions and allows for a time of respite and calm and peace. Prayers provide weapons in our spiritual warfare against Satan. With prayer, we can continue the work of preaching the gospel, sharing the good news. And he uses the term in all godliness and reverence, sharing the good news. Here, I think godliness means in a way that reflects the character of God and the will of God. We conduct ourselves in a way that reflects the character of God and the will of God, and then it affects the way that we actually act around everyone around us. Dignity or reverence includes the idea of of a serious purpose coupled with a sense of moral urgency. In other words, we begin to think carefully and biblically about the circumstances that we find ourselves in and we see the need. Again, the context isn't simply a private individual making private prayers, but a corporate praying of a congregation that begins to take on the character of Christ. And I want to remind you of the context. Remember, Paul's been talking about false teachers and false teaching. Well, what happens when the false teachers and the false teaching gets kicked out of the church? Or what happens when the false teachers or the false teaching is confronted in the church? And you can imagine there's a sense of maybe some antagonism and and friction and conflict. But in the midst of that antagonism and friction and conflict, when you begin to pray for people, when you begin to care about people, when you begin to pray for them, you, you discover something, that your attitude towards them changes. Think for just a moment of what Paul is proposing to Timothy. The danger isn't simply on the outside, from the culture, from the Romans, from the Greeks, from the paganism. There's also a danger on the inside of the people who name the name of Christ. We expect the world to be fraught with danger. Can you imagine going to a church and you're scared to go to church? You're afraid. You're afraid to go to church because you're going to run into that person. You're going to run into that person who makes you feel miserable or who makes you feel little or who makes you feel stupid or who makes you feel the way that people on the outside make you feel. The unbeliever and the make-believer and the hurtful person and the angry person. I mean, if you want to get sick and disgusted, you go, hey, look, I I can spend all of my time out there in the world to be sick and disgusted. I don't expect it at church. We should come to church and expect encouragement and grace and mercy, support, comfort. The church is supposed to be a place of peace And by that, I don't mean simply the absence of conflict. I mean a place of love and support. We don't simply preach or teach the Bible. We don't simply even confront error. But somehow, if you only preach, if you only teach the Bible, if you only confront error, but you don't promote prayer... the chances are that we'll get information, but inspiration and transformation will be conspicuous by its absence. And so, in the next few verses, Paul is going to talk about three things. Mission, well, actually four things. Mission, mediator, method, and messenger. In verse 3 and 4, God wants everyone saved. That's the mission. 
The mediator, Jesus, stands between God and his people in verse 5. Method, salvation comes from the sacrifice of Jesus in verse 6. Messenger, Paul's been chosen by God to serve as a missionary. Why does he insert this little bit of information in the context of corporate prayer? I think for good reason. Because he's talking about prayers that are connected to the truth and to the gospel. And so he talks about the mission. Why are we doing this? Why are we praying? It has all of these benefits and all of those benefits are good. But then Paul mentions for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. In what sense? What have we just read? This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. What? That you pray for your leaders and those in authority with the supplications, intercessions. It's good and acceptable when you pray for one another. It's good and acceptable when you pray for all men. It's good and acceptable when you pray for the people on the outside who are hurt. And then he says these interesting things. He, he refers to God as our savior. And the reason why this becomes important in a cultural context and a contemporary context, I'm going to try to explain First of all, God is our Savior, not the Republican Party, not the Democratic Party, for those of you who are laughing. No wonder Franklin Graham at the Capitol said, I don't trust the Republican Party, and I don't trust the Democratic Party. They're not the savior. God is the savior. The government isn't the savior. The economy isn't the savior. Jobs aren't the savior. Our children can't be our savior. Again, remember the immediate context. Paul warned of false teaching and false teachers. Why is that? Because they were claiming to be the Savior, that they had a religious way of, of doing things or believing things. We, we pray for the false teachers and the false teaching. We pray for their salvation. We pray for opportunities to bring them to the truth and restore them to fellowship. But because remember what the false teachers and the false teachings were, teachers were promising, a way of salvation apart from what Paul was talking about. We pray. We pray as a church. We pray for those who question the faith or abandon the faith or ignore the faith or live outside of the faith. Instead of simply being upset that a family member has left the church or who's left fellowship or left friendship or a person who comes to you and says, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic or I don't even believe that the Bible is true. We pray for them. Because we understand that there's something invisible and internal and spiritual that is taking place. We pray for them. Paul writes, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's our mission. Our prayers include salvation for the lost. I know this might be hard for some of you to stomach. But this is Paul's way of saying, pray for the leaders, pray for the kings. Can you imagine Paul and Timothy and the, and the church at Ephesus as they're writing this? They begin to pray and they get together and they go, Heavenly Father, will you just please save Nero? Save him, Lord. Convict him of his sin. Convict him that, well, he's not God. And that he's not the savior. And even though he has unlimited power and, and unlimited resources and gigantic armies, even though it looks like he has whatever it is that he wants, save him. All of the indication is that Nero wasn't saved. And that he never became saved. Is it possible that you could pray for leaders and those in authority? You pray for all men. You pray for your family. You pray for your friends. You, you pray for the people that you love. And you pray for the people that you hate. And you pray that God would save them. That he would come into their life. That they would be convicted of their sin. 
Paul reminds Timothy that prayer is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Prayer pleases God and glorifies the Lord Jesus. What else? It pleases God. It pleases the Lord Jesus because God's mission and purpose and plan is to save people. And I think each and every one of you within the sound of my voice might be a little bit shocked and you might be a little bit blown away if God in his grace and his mercy gave you the ability to see into your past and looked at the the people in your high school or your grandma or your grandpa or your mom or your dad or your brothers or your sisters or your friends or your family that would pray for you. They began praying for you. They they began praying that, that God would that you would sense God's presence and God's love and that you would know God's presence and God's love, that you would realize that you were a sinner and that you needed a savior. And all of a sudden, those fervent, effectual prayers of a person who cared deeply about you, God opens the doors so that a powerful and dramatic change could take place. Who desires all men to be saved. You know there are people who read that passage. That I just read to you. And they don't believe it. They question it. I'll read it again. Who desires all men to be saved. Let's ask the most obvious question. Does God really desire all men to be saved And to come to the knowledge of the truth. There it is right in front of you. It has to mean something. It can't mean God desires most people to be saved. Or you're saved or damned for all eternity. Because you're saved or damned for all eternity. I can't believe even for a moment that this is what it means. The answer is an emphatic yes. Jesus died for all men. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord isn't slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter writes and he says, No, God cares about you. He loves you. The, the, the most powerful Proof that this is true is that God sent his son and that Paul uses the term all men, that God is patient, that the Holy Spirit directs us to pray for the unbeliever, to intercede for the lost. And you need to understand something in the early church. They were faced with a wicked teaching that were brought on by legalistic Jews that God willed the destruction of the Gentiles. Jews would pray a prayer. I thank you, God, that you made me a Jew and not a Gentile. I thank you, God, that you made me a man and not a woman. There were people who literally believed that The Gentiles were created because somebody has to buy retail. But then there was another attachment. God created Gentiles to provide the fuel that would stoke the fires of hell. Some Jews believe that you were saved or damned for all eternity simply because you were saved or damned for all eternity. And if you happen to be a Jew, you were a part of the lucky few. And if you weren't, sorry. That's bad luck for you. It's interesting to me how many even some Christians adopt that view. Even Christians will sometimes ask me the question, Well, then what about the people who are born in the place where they've never heard about Jesus or they never hear the gospel? And Paul in Athens, when he was speaking at the Areopagus, 
he basically made this small speech to the philosophers who were there. He says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it. This is Acts chapter 17, verse 24. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives all life, breath, and all things. And he made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Paul's position is God places each person in exactly the place that he has placed them, not so that they would be lost, but so that they would be saved. That might come as a shock and a surprise to you when you think of the enormous obstacles that a person born in Saudi Arabia or some dark place in Africa or Indonesia might face. But Paul is arguing exactly the opposite, that he places everyone everywhere. Not so that they would be lost, but so that they would be saved. There was a wicked and a perverse notion by the Gnostics that salvation was only for the spiritually elite, those who knew the Gnostic teaching, those who had access to the special teaching that was brought by the enlightened few. And if you joined their cult or if you read their book or if you knocked on certain doors, if you did certain things, if you gave them money, then you could have access to the information that would guarantee you a place in eternity. By the way, that's what the Scientologists believe. Did you know that? You go to a certain level with Scientology and they'll remove the bad, they call them engrams, that you, you carry this baggage with you. And if you give them a certain amount of money, they'll hook you up to a machine and then they'll purge you of all of the darkness or emptiness or wickedness that's inside of you until you're finally free from all of this stuff. Now, now think, contrast that with what the Bible says. That you're saved by grace. That you can have a right relationship with God. That Jesus is willing to save you. Clearly, God's desire for all men to be saved doesn't mean that all men will be saved. That's called universalism. How do we know? Because the Bible repeatedly affirms the notion that people have the ability to choose and choose otherwise. They can reject Christ, Matthew 25, 31. John chapter 12, verse 44. Hebrews chapter 10. John chapter 8, where Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders. And he said, unless you believe that I am who I say that I am, you will likewise perish in your sin." There's a reason why Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except by me. God's desire for the salvation for all is reflected in a salvation that's available to all. And this is Paul's point. Jesus is a provision for all people. For Jew, for Gentile, for Greek, for slave, for free, for every human being. 1 Timothy 4.10 shows that the guarantee of salvation is for everyone who receives salvation. If you just skip ahead to chapter 4, verse 10, look what it says. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men especially of those who believe. Salvation is available to, to those who believe. Again, faith isn't just simply having a knowledge of the facts. It isn't even believing the facts. There comes a point where you know the truth and then you believe the truth and then you receive the truth here the knowledge of the truth that he's talking about here that expression the knowledge of the truth means the gospel message 
The knowledge of the truth isn't simply directed at the Jew or the spiritually elite, not just simply one race or one group of people or even one gender. God loves the whole world. He provides salvation for the whole world. His offer is to sinners who are in rebellion, who see themselves as sinners in need of a savior. No one outside of God's grace and mercy and and understanding is beyond the reach. Everyone who comes to him. That's why Jesus says, everyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. So God desires both salvation and understanding. And that's the knowledge of the truth. Faith isn't, again, simply knowing the truth or believing the truth. It's knowing it, believing it, and trusting it. We don't love and serve the Savior to be saved. We're saved. And so we love and serve the Savior. And look what Paul writes. There's a mediator for there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The knowledge of the truth is the gospel. And so now Paul includes three things necessary to the gospel, foundational to the Christian. There's one God. There's one mediator between God and men. That's Jesus himself. There's one ransom. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Paul, writing to Timothy, speaking about these things to a pagan culture, to a a culture that believes, well, wait a minute, you say there's only one God, but we're Greeks or we're Romans. We believe there are many gods. There were atheists and agnostics even then. There's no God. There's many gods. There's one God. Who's right? Who's wrong? Paul says, there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We could put it another way. There's one God, there's one Savior, there's one satisfying solution to the problem of sin, one ransom. God chose Jesus to be our mediator. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Wait a minute, you just said there's one God. Now you're saying there's two gods. No, there's one God. And this one God is distinct with three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit. And Jesus is the eternal, existent, second person of the Trinity who takes on a new nature, a human nature. He is the only person, the one and only exclusive being who is able to both touch God and man at the same time. And so we have a mediator, a bridge between God and man. And therefore we have one hope, verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Paul repeats what Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Pagan people in Ephesus and the Roman Empire would have grown up in a world where people worshipped multiple gods. They had family loyalties to the gods. Ephesus was the location of the, one of the six one, or seven wonders of the world. It was the temple of Artemis, and it was destroyed. I happen to have two coins that have a, a picture of, of, the, of the statue of Artemis. This is the same place in the book of Acts where Paul and Timothy are traveling and they're in a stadium. And I've actually been in this actual stadium that holds 24,000 people. And their number one source of income and revenue was loyalty to the temple of Diana. Craig Keener, who I had on my radio program today, wrote in his IVP Bible background commentary, he wrote this. The Romans permitted subject people to worship their own gods, but they had to show their loyalty to Rome by also worshiping the the goddess Roma and the spirit of the emperor. Because Jewish people worshiped one god to the exclusion of all others, Rome allowed them to pray and sacrifice for the emperor's health without praying and sacrificing to him. Prayers were offered regularly in the synagogues, showing the loyalty to these Jewish institutions to the Roman state. 
In other words, the Jews themselves were given sort of an exemption. They wouldn't sacrifice to the Roman gods or the Roman emperor, but they would show their loyalty to the state by praying for the emperor. You know what's interesting? Not a single Christian was killed in the first century because of religious persecution. Do you realize in Rome, they had freedom of worship. You could worship any god or no god. But you had to show your loyalty to the government and to the state. Do you know why Christians were killed? Because they were thought to be traitors to the state and disloyal to the emperor. Keener adds, quote, when the zealots decided to throw off the Roman yoke for one God, however, they abolished the sacrifices in the temple. This act in AD 66 constituted a virtual declaration of war against Rome. Several years after this, Paul would write this letter. Well, actually, Paul writes this letter in 64 AD. The Jews throw off the yoke in 66 AD. And so now all of a sudden we begin to understand Paul's motive. Pray. Pray for peace. Pray for an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And you know what's going to happen in the very real world in which these people live? Overwhelming persecution. And then a few years later, a war that's going to kill over a million Jews. The text reminds us that God is holy and sinless and perfect and human beings are by nature sinners and they're lost. And because, again, all of these things are true, this is why Paul says what he says. There's one God. There's one mediator. There's one ransom. And so Paul in verse 7 says, For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul describes himself as appointed by Jesus as a preacher, a herald, an apostle. This is an ambassador who's entrusted by a king with a very special message. And so Paul once again reminds Timothy that all of these things that we're doing and the praise, prayers that we're praying and the opportunities that we're embracing is because God sent Paul to a world that needed a savior. Now, I want you to just think about this for a moment. In verse 8, or in verse 7, when Paul says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm speaking the truth and I'm not lying. From what you already know about Timothy and their companionship, their relationship, and their travels, is Paul writing this for Timothy's sake? I don't think so. I think he's writing it for all of the people that Timothy is serving. That he's the pastor of the church. He's saying all of these things which Timothy already knows. Timothy isn't insecure about Paul's integrity. Paul writes this for the sake of the believers who are there. And then he talks about the conditions of prayer quickly. Desire, therefore, that I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere. I desire that men pray everywhere in Ephesus, in Antioch in Jerusalem, in Philippi, in Corinth, in Rome, in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, in Denver, in New York. He says, I desire that men pray. And in this verse, he lays out three conditions for public praying in the local church. He says, holy hands, without wrath, no doubting. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean to lift holy hands? Is he saying that all of a sudden we have to go Pentecostal? You may have grown up in a religious tradition where raising your hands, man, that's weird. That's like, that's way out of, that's out of bounds. In the Roman Catholic Church, we didn't do that. We, we wouldn't, you know, we didn't do this. We didn't do the waving and all of this stuff. 
So why is Paul doing this? What is he saying? Is he saying that in public prayer we have to all raise our hands and, and raise our face and, and, and lift our palms? In a sense he is. Because in that culture, in that society, holy hands meant a clean and obedient life. Public prayer in the church meant that the saints were leading clean and holy lives. In the Jewish culture, and then among the early Christians, they would raise their head towards heaven, and they would raise their palms towards heaven as a sign, if you will, and a symbol of obedience, simplicity, and cleanliness that they don't have anything to hide, that they're living holy and obedient lives to Christ. Why is that important? Because if you're not living a holy and an obedient life, life to Christ, then your prayers aren't going to be all that helpful. Without wrath means absent wrath, which means the presence of a loving heart. So he says, you have a clean and obedient life. You have a heart not filled with anger and bitterness and resentment, but a heart of love. So when Paul says all men, does he mean no women? I don't think so. But I think it means something. I think it must mean at least that men are supposed to take the lead in initiating prayer, in congregational prayer. We pray clean and obedient hearts, absent argument or anger. Remember, remember, divisive teaching undermines effective prayer. The presence of anger in the heart interrupts prayer. The presence of hypocrisy in the heart kills prayer. Anger fueled by quarrels, debates. Again, it could have been a reference to the false teachers and their false doctrine. But Paul is making it clear. It isn't just simply saying the right words. It's having the right heart. When you say the right words. Oswald Chambers famously wrote, quote, Jesus Christ carries on intercession for us in heaven. The Holy Ghost carries on intercession in us on earth. And we, the saints, have to carry on intercession for all men. We pray. Not simply because we have to. But we must. We won't have any life as a church and we won't have any effective outreach as a church and people won't be saved and hearts won't be changed and lives won't be changed if we fail to pray because it's not playing a guitar and it's not even preaching a message. It's the power and the presence of God convicting the heart making possible the reality that a life could be could change so we pray we pray because we have relationship to god we pray in faith we pray in worship we pray in expectation we pray in submission we pray in petition and confession with compassion and dependence and gratitude and when all of those elements are present, we can say that we prayed. This is going to serve as the template for corporate prayer and future prayer. This is what will serve as the invitation and encouragement to you. Take time to pray. Find opportunity to pray. On Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock, in the multi-purpose room, do something that most of you have never done. Show up. Pray. The moment that you do that, when we show up and we begin to pray, then all, I shouldn't say all, most of the challenges that we face, most of the difficulties that we encounter, most of the things that are causing emptiness, apathy, and indifference will go away if we pray. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray in relationship because that's what you said. You said our Father, and we have a relationship because we know and we love you. We pray in faith, not just simply knowing the facts or, and believing the facts. Well, Lord, we want to trust you. We want to trust you. We pray in worship and expectation, submission. Lord, we confess our sin and the sins of our nation. Lord, we pray with compassion as we look out into an empty and broken world and know that people need Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would break our hearts for the things that break your heart. That, Lord, we would begin to care about people the way you care about them. That, Lord, we would acknowledge our dependence upon you for everything. If there's anything good, if there's anything decent, if there's anything wholesome, if there's anything lasting, Lord, we know it's going to come from you. And, Lord, we're grateful that we have a place for now that we can meet. We have a place for now where we can sing. We have a place for now where we can encourage one another. We have a place for now where we can pray. And Lord, we know that might all change very, very quickly. And so Lord, we pray that we would take advantage of the opportunities that you've entrusted to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.